This is Maine Coast Doc Talk, a podcast bringing you the latest news and stories from Maine's working waterfronts. This podcast is brought to you by the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. I'm your host, Ben Martens. Welcome to Maine Coast Doc Talk. I've got two fantastic guests with me today who did a recent project in looking into gentrification along the coast of New England and fishing ports in particular. And so I'd love for you two to quickly introduce yourselves and uh, how you came to the project. So Matt, why don't we start with you? Sure thing. So uh, my name is Matt Cutler. I'm a social scientist um, at the Northeast Fisheries Science Center Social Sciences Branch. I'm a sociologist by training, and so we have a number of projects that I'm involved in on the social science side of fisheries, and one of those is the social indicators of community vulnerability and resilience, and and that's a that's a set of of, of indicators or indices of 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 different aspects, different dimensions of community vulnerability. And a lot of that data comes from the census, but also from our fisheries databases, commercial and recreational fishing. And so we sort of categorize fishing communities along these dimensions, things like poverty, housing disruption, but also as we see with the story map, gentrification pressure. And so we, I came to this project because I was introduced to Rose through the, what we call the NERTO internship program. It's the NOAA Experiential Research and Training Opportunity through the EPP MSI. Rose, help me with the acronym. I can't remember. <laughs> um, um, I know it's a... Go ahead. <laughs> yes, I can take over. So I'm Rose Jimenez. Yeah. I'm a PhD candidate at the City University of New York Graduate Center and Lehman College. And I study environmental science, specifically human geography. And I'm supported in my PhD fellowship with the NOAA Center for Earth System Science and Remote Sensing Technologies. A huge part of the professional development in this program is to participate in the NERDO or the NOAA Experiential Research and Training Opportunity, which is very much like an externship where you get matched with a mentor. So we developed the project together and I was really the primary author of the mapping products and Dr. Cutler mentored me through the whole process. Well, I was really tickled to see this come out. Matt and I have talked about this before, but in the fisheries world, we don't really talk about this side of the equation when it comes to sociology, when it comes to community, right? Like we, we talk a lot about community, but we, the data behind it is always hard to come by. And when we start talking about fisheries, it turns into biology and the money side of the equation as well. And so the people get left out, the community gets left out when you start talking about science. So Rose, I'd, I'd love to just hear a little bit more about how you came to this project and what enticed you to dig into this set of data. I've experienced a lot of gentrification. Like it's really impacted my life and my family's life on an individual family level. And uh, I'm a GIS expert and it was really very much like a matching situation where I think my research on gentrification and mapping and the social and ecological dynamics between them really matched with what the social indicators team wanted for their story map. Why, why a story map? What does that mean? So, yeah, I mean, I, so I actually was introduced to, I, I was aware of what story maps were because folks have been using them at NOAA for a while to sort of describe different topics of interest that have a geographic kind of dimension to them, which is a lot of 
obviously fisheries is highly geographic. And so if, you know, the biologists and, 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 and individuals in, in habitat and ecosystems use story maps to show how different areas are affected by different changes in environmental conditions or fishing effort or something like that. So I was familiar with story maps in general, but I had never used them for our, our work. And we hadn't, I wasn't aware of it, any, anybody else in our branch or in the social sciences world within NOAA using these. And so when Rose was, was introduced to me through the NERDO program, she had done a story map on, on Gravesend Bay. And I was really just struck by how informative it was. And basically it's a way to kind of interactively show somebody who may be coming to, this, to the topic um, completely unaware of what the inner workings are of, of, of whatever it is the subject matter is. And, and maybe a layperson who who doesn't understand maybe the methods or the sort of the, the the intricacies of the science of a particular aspect of something, but they they can kind of engage with this on, on the web interactively and and scroll down and look at and, and look at different aspects of something ge- in a geographic um, setting, and and pull up things you know that are of interest to them as they're going through, and so it's not like you're forced into one thing or another as you know being lectured about you know something that isn't of interest to you you can kind of pick and choose where you know where your interest lies you know if you're if it's somewhere near where you live or something where you have an interest um in in a particular geographic space so you know the 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 range of topics can is limitless obviously in a story map but it's an interesting way to to engage with people members of the public and stakeholders in ways that you know to showcase our data in ways that isn't just simply going down you know a set of tables as you'd see at the back of like a council document or something like that. So Rose, I, I, if you want to maybe follow up on, because you're, you're really the expert too in designing these. And so I think you had some great, great work um, on, you know, especially on that our story map, but on your own as well. So I like story maps because they kind of increase map literacy. Traditionally, a map is a big piece of paper with a whole lot of data on it, but a story map has just really tells more of a story and usually has interactive functions. So the type of map I embedded into the story map is a map tour. So basically there are pins and people can kind of walk through the landscape. They click a pin, it opens a photo, it zooms at different levels. And I think it helps really guide you through a map rather than just having a piece of paper and a legend, which mapping is a language all its own. And people kind of need to learn to read a map. And I think the story map helps narrativize the map more than just showing colors and dots and few labels, which I I like them a lot. And gentrification just really lends itself to spatial awareness as well, right? So as we start looking at this and thinking about the impacts are to the communities we care about, and you can look at the map and you can see what's happening around us and in other places and what might be coming. And so you know, to dig into what you kind of took and translated into this interactive mapping story, let's start with the basics. So we've already used the term a couple of times, but what is gentrification? How did you define it for this project? I think gentrification is a really loaded term and it's kind of a buzzword nowadays, but broadly it's a combination of demographic shifts and economic transformations that are intimately linked. And for this project, we focused on retiree migration, which indicates a demographic shift that generally ages the overall population and the economic transformations related to that in these particular communities. So for example, retirees and people who migrate in from like urban sprawl, 
might trigger more dependence on people in the community finding jobs in tourism, working in hotels or the service industry, working in bars and restaurants, rather than what's called the natural resource manufacturing and administration industry or fishing and agriculture industry. And it really disrupts the economy overall. Maybe money in the economy stays static, but at the individual and family level, it really changes the culture in the community and how much financial stability and housing stability that people have. So take the next step with me then. So why bring this to fishing communities? I'm sure that there's a lot of other communities that you could have looked at. Why was this kind of a, a unique project to look into the impacts of gentrification on, on fishing communities, historically and culturally fishing communities? Uh, well, so we have these indicators of gentrification pressure. And so we have these dimensions of retiree migration, urban sprawl and housing disruption, but we also have a measure of commercial fishing engagement by community. And just having been, you know, a social scientist at the Science Center for a little while and being aware of the fact that certain communities are um, facing greater or lesser pressure from these forces of gentrification on the working waterfronts, I thought, well, you know, it'd be interesting to look at how gentrification pressure varies by our most highly engaged commercial fishing ports in the Northeast region. And so we used our commercial engagement indicator to key in on our highest engaged communities over the past 10 years in the Northeast, and then look at what, what does gentrification pressure look like in each of these communities and where has it really had the greatest impact, at least according to our, our data. And, and what can that tell us about, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, what the future of these ports look, looks like as, as they transform to uh, sort of uh, suit the needs of incoming populations that are displacing existing people. And, and how, and how can we use that information to then inform the council, the agency about, you know, these other forces that are displacing fishermen and fishing communities. So Matt, I'm going to ask you to dumb it down for me because I'm not a scientist. So you had 29 different fishing communities that you looked at. What did what exactly were the metrics that you used to determine what communities you were going to use in this analysis? Right. So we got at 29 because these were over this the course of the period of 2009 to 2018, these 29 communities had an average ranking of high commercial fishing engagement based on our the score that comes out of the you know in the indicator analysis the sort of factor analysis that that we t take all these commercial fishing variables like landings and pounds landed dollar value permits number of commercial fishing permits dealers with landings and we put all it put it all into like this arithmetic and, and spit out this index score for for each community and so the the the, the communities with the highest scores on average across that 10-year period were selected into our sample of commercial fishing communities it doesn't mean that these are the only commercial fishing communities and for for instance i i in another interview uh, someone else recently i was I was talking about she, she had raised the issue that providence i'm sorry provincetown in massachusetts didn't make the cut and I thought that was an astute point that this is a community where perhaps for a number of those years in the interim in that 10 year period, they had moderately high, but not high commercial fishing engagement. So we kind of had a high bar for inclusion in this set of communities. So, so that might be a consideration for the future, expanding the, the list of, of potential, you know, communities for inclusion in this kind of a story map. But so that, that was kind of how we determined the 29 communities that we did. But like I said, it's not to say that, you know, the communities outside of this list aren't important or aren't highly engaged in commercial fishing activity. They're just not, they're not, they didn't, they didn't kind of make the, the tw top 29 ranking over that 10 year period, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And then, so Rose, each community then got a score of the threat of gentrification and it was out of 12. What were the different factors that went into determining that score? So each community has three gentrification pressure risk categories that are, they're based a lot on like census data, but they are the risks, risks from urban sprawl retiree migration and housing disruption, each one of which is ranked one to four. And we added them up. So each community would get a score between three and 12. And then we averaged that over the 10 years that we looked at. I would imagine that for some places, certain factors like retiree migration are more impactful than urban sprawl. I'm thinking of like my closest community to me, Harpswell, not a lot of urban sprawl, a lot of retiree migration, right? And so, you know, as you take this tool and we start sharing it with our communities, you know, how can they start thinking about these numbers, these classifications, and start thinking about how they do, you know, regional planning, how, how communities take the work and start thinking about, about it closer to home? Well, I think it's very much policy oriented more than like individual accountability. But for Portland, for example, it has 50 to 60 times the population of other communities in Maine. And it has already kind of an infrastructure built in for nightlife and restaurants and tourism. And it's appealing to the young, upwardly mobile professionals, as you might call them. But there was a huge sudden boom in property values that raised rents almost 18% in one year. Rezoning needs to be better regulated to make sure that there aren't massive spikes in rising rents that cause massive displacement to people. And so that comes back to that, you know, so I, I mentioned the retiree migration, urban sprawl. So that comes back to the third piece of that equation, which is housing. Mm-hmm. So this, this kind of gets to something I want to touch on a little bit more later, but just while we're here, we can address it. So in a place like Maine, housing is has changed dramatically with COVID, right? Now we have a 30% spike in housing costs and, and it's going up, it's continuing to trend up. So how, you know, on the other side of COVID, now that we have like new data streams that we're going to have to use, like, do you start to weight things differently at some point? You know, you had the four, four, four equal weighting of these distributions for some communities, you know, should we be changing the weights of, of how we distribute risk to gentrification? That's a really uh, good suggestion, I think, and one that I think comes from where uh, there's this disconnect often between what the social scientists are doing in the in the uh, behind the desk environment, you know, that's sometimes informed by, you know, good sound kind of judgment, but sometimes needs that, that kind of information that you just shared where, you know, having practical experience with these communities and knowing kind of which one of these dimensions actually is more important than the other. So having a weighting scheme for these indicators isn't something that they've done before. So, you know, like you like you rightly point out, each of these dimensions is kind of equally weighted in the score that we generated for the story map. But in general, when they develop these different social indicators of gentrification pressure, they also, in that analysis, they don't necessarily give, they're kind of treated as different separate but equal dimensions that are reported out. Whether the uh, retiree migration or urban sprawl has a, has a differential impact, I think is not something that the indicators necessarily are good at showing on their own. I think where our story map might be able to help with that 
is that we have these narratives. So as you're scrolling down and going through each community, we, we tried our best to synthesize other sources of data to get beyond these indicators, which are kind of a crude tool. And we tried to sort of create a narrative around census quick facts, which you can go to, we link to on the site as well. And you can get numbers about, you know, population, education, income at the community level. We also use the Voices of the Fisheries database, which are oral history archives, and we kind of mine those for interesting quotes from folks about gentrification pressure or working waterfronts. And then we also use some of the some of the commercial fisheries data as well. And so we try to synthesize multiple tools here to tr create a narrative for each community to, that tells you, well, this community really is f experiencing the impacts of, of retiree migration, and, and, and this is a, a small community to begin with very small vessels fished out of here. And, and so it's a, it's a very vulnerable community to, you know, population influx from, from these forces, whereas in other community like Portland, Maine is undergoing maybe urban sprawl and things like that. It is already a, a larger community that can maybe withstand some of these economic transformations because there are other sectors of its co economy that are thriving that folks can work in. Not to say that, you know, <laughs> we wouldn't want to preserve the fishing working waterfronts in Portland either. It, you know, it's a, it's a delicate uh, balance, I think, because uh, when you get to a community, for instance, like Boston, and we say in our in our narrative for Boston, you know, this is a place that, you know, just has a di very diverse economy. And you don't want to say that it isn't the case that we shouldn't preserve fishing here as well. But it's just to say that there, there are multiple opportunity avenues for folks here. Whereas in a place like Harpswell, for instance, maybe there aren't multiple economic opportunities in the way that there are in some of these more major cities. So Rose, did you go through and, and create those stories? And, and what was, you know, what was the most interesting thing that you pulled from that process for you personally? And, and I'm biased towards Maine. So if you have an answer that includes Maine, I'd love it. But what was the most interesting stuff that you kind of dug into as you were going through that storytelling part of the process? The reason I wanted to do the archival research and add in people's stories is that the numbers, as many numbers as I could show you, they don't really show the emotional and mental health toll that gentrification has on people. So people who move to fishing communities to take in the sea air for increasing their own mental and physical health, they gain a lot usually. But our archival research showed that there are a lot of nuances to the heritage and morale in every individual community, no matter how physically close they might be to each other. Like an interviewee we highlighted from Reedville, Virginia, for example, expressed that he felt people moved to an area because the heritage was so appealing to them and they wanted to take it all in. But the people who are emotionally and physically invested in fostering the land and the heritage and the landscape didn't have people coming in from elsewhere in the United States that were also contributing to that. So he called it I think sustainable dilapidation where um, he, like people don't feel that the incoming population are contributing to fostering the land. And especially retirees, they're not coming to work, they're coming to rest. And it just changes not only the economic dynamics in a place, but also the social community dynamics in a place. And people who come in have you know, their own ideas about how infrastructure should be set up, about how tax money should be spent that maybe don't match up with people who have more intimate ties to the community. That was said perfectly. I, I love, I love how you kind of pulled that all together because that's, 
you know, we, we've been struggling with that in the working waterfront in Maine, right? You come here for these beautiful iconic places and then suddenly you wake up in the morning and there's a loud lobster boat outside or the bait smells or there's a truck blocking your driveway and suddenly there's conflict. What we often try and push forward is the idea of communication and making sure that people understand what they're walking into and build connections and community around that. But it's not always easy, right? Because the idealized version is often very different in these types of communities than the reality of, you know, working community, which, you know, was like the uniqueness of a lot of these places that you highlighted was these are working communities, but they're also summer communities, right? They are, they are a destination for a lot of them. And I don't know that this is solvable, but I wanted to turn that back onto you and say, how do you use this? How do I, how do I take this to a community like Harpswell or a community like Port Clyde? And how do we use this as a step forward? That's a really interesting and, and difficult question because there are multiple avenues for policy change and some make more sense than others. And I think it isn't to say that the council can't do anything about this, but it isn't set up to do anything about this, right? I mean, it's sort of, they, they can take it into consideration. We can present uh, these findings to the to the New England Fisheries Management Council or the Mid-Atlantic Council. And they, they'll nod and say, yeah, it's a problem. But I don't, at the end of the day, I don't know if like an amendment or, you know, because they, they sort of manage things by fishery and by species to, you know, it's not a, it's not a, a community management council. So then the, the, I mean, maybe, maybe the challenge would be to, or the potential avenue would be to bring this to local state state and local policymakers, you know, town planning boards, things like that, zoning committees, and and make them aware of it. And, and so putting it out there is one step. And then, you know, obviously talking to folks like you is, 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 a, is another step in, along that, I think that process. And then hopefully we can get this into the hands of people, you know, at the local level who might be thinking about what to do with, you know, a downtown area or a port port side area, you know, as people are moving in and, and home values are increasing and new developers are trying to develop the waterfront in ways that, you know, it, it could change it fundamentally. So kind of having this this in their in the back of their minds as they're making those decisions about what to do with the with the land and property, I think would be would be important. And so I, I'm not quite sure how we get there, but I think we're starting to as we unwrap we we've we put it out there and now we're hoping to create the dialogue and, and this space is one space for that. But I mean hopefully we can think about new ways of, of approaching policymakers that isn't just through the traditional kind of council, you know, way that we do with our, you know, our science center. Rose, how do you think the pandemic is going to impact gentrification and this type of work moving forward? Well, I don't know. And I know why I don't know, which is our data, our numbers just happened to stop right at the beginning when the pandemic was beginning to hit our region of this country. And I think there were two huge economic impacts from this, which was a big bust to the tourism industry. So if your if your community was shifting to a tourism economy and then the tourism shut down, now you have a bunch of empty restaurants. But there was also a big boom in urban sprawl and people tend to live in densely populated cities because that's where a lot of jobs tend to be concentrated. However, I think that people who had jobs where they're capable of doing remote work or like they have like hardware centric jobs where they sit at a computer or maybe they have very few ties to the city they're currently living in are more likely to move out of big cities. But people without wealth stocks are very much stuck where they are. So if you're someone who cleans like my mom or you work in a restaurant or you're a fisher who 
works in a fishery, if you work with your hands, you're not very likely to be part of the urban sprawl, right? So I think it's going to be mostly wealthier or retired individuals dispersing into other areas. And I, which I think at the very least is going to exacerbate the metrics that this study is looking at. However, one thing that I think really makes this unpredictable is that such a tremendous number of people passed away prematurely in the last year and a half that the entire world population dynamics have shifted. So I'm sure there's unfortunately a lot of empty housing from people who passed away that maybe is being filled by different people all of a sudden, all at once. So I think it really needs to be analyzed by itself. And I think that so many things shifted that it's hard to really predict what's going to happen. Yeah, the metrics have shifted and the society has shifted around us. The economics around fishing has changed. And, um, you know, we've, we've seen it really, you know, it started in Southern Maine, but it's up and down the coast now where, you know, folks are thinking that they can live in these types of places. And when you come from a Boston or a New York and you look at a house on the coast of Maine and you're like, it's only a million dollars that's a steal, right? And that's that's not a steal for those of us that have been living here, the fishing communities and the fishermen that have been there for generations. And so I think that there's also that other side of the pressure of if you suddenly are sitting on something that is way more valuable as a piece of property, whether that's working waterfront or a house that is in that community, is that growing pressure with the other outside influences on these fishing businesses suddenly an enticement that we didn't have previously. And so it, it is super complicated when you start thinking about the future of our fishermen, fishing communities, fishing businesses, and then what, you know, who wants to live in these types of places and what those drivers are. So I, I hope, Rose, that you will continue to play in this area and, and play with this type of data. I know that Matt will be, but I've, I've really enjoyed chatting with you guys about this and learning a little bit more about it. Rose, where can we find uh, all this stuff that you've pulled together? Uh, and we'll put it all on our website as well, but where's the easiest place to find the, the story? The URL is incomprehensible. Perfect. So... So we'll put it on our website then. Yeah, you can put it on your website, but it's called Social Indicators of Gentrification Pressure, how gentrification is affecting 29 fishing communities in the Northeast United States. That sounds great. I really appreciate it. You guys for taking the time today. We'll talk soon. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much, Ben. Bye. Bye, Burroughs. Maine Coast Doc Talk is a production of the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, an industry-based nonprofit that identifies and fosters ways to restore the fisheries of the Gulf of Maine and sustain Maine's fishing communities for future generations. For more information about our work, to make a donation, or to listen to previous episodes of Doc Talk, you can visit our website, maincoastfisherman.org.